We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Hey, Kelly, I've got a weird question for you. You know, we are going to have to recalibrate weird after all of the strange questions that you (laughs) ask me on this show. All right. Well, here's the question. What's the most common ingredient in your pantry? Wow. I was expecting you to ask about the ways the universe might incinerate my children. (laughs) All right. So in the pantry, let's see. Uh, By volume, probably flour. Thanks to Zach's, you know, pandemic baking experiments. (laughs) I love hearing that. But what about like by number? Do you have more bags of flour than like cans of beans? You know, the answer to that is also flour. So we have like loads of weird kinds of flour thanks to all of Zach's baking experiments. So we've got like rye, buckwheat, wheat, chickpea, almonds. Uh, If it's been creative, we've probably tried it. We we don't have any cricket flour yet. I know that that's, (laughs) you can get that on the market, but almost anything else we've probably tried. Sounds like your family is uh, flour powered. Okay. (laughs) Flour and butter are the fundamental particles of baking. Maybe I should get to work on a butter collider. See, that's the kind of weird thing I was (laughs) expecting from you. I'm here to live up to your expectations. Bravo. particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I really do like colliding butter and flour. I'm Kelly Wiener-Smith, a parasitologist with Rice University, and I love consuming the collision of butter and flour, but I tend to stay out of the kitchen for everyone's sake. And give us a sense for how often Zach's baking experiments have a positive outcome. Like when the kids hear, oh, dad's baking, are they excited or are they a little worried? They're excited. Zach is actually really good in the kitchen and most of the time he's not trying to make like healthy foods. He's <laughs> he's definitely making like cakes and pies and muffins and very kid-friendly things. So yeah, most of the time the outcome of those collisions is good. I see no cricket flour pastry crusts yet. <laughs> no, no, he's a vegetarian and I think for him that extends to crickets. <laughs> 
All right. And welcome to the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, in which we experiment with cooking up the universe into bite-sized chunks for you. We want to take everything that's out there in the universe, the crazy black holes, the cosmic swirls of quasars, the tiny little frothing quantum particles. We want to weave together a story that makes sense to your human brain. Because amazingly, incredibly, we think that the human brain is capable of fashioning stories about the nature of our universe that makes sense to us, that our little mathematical capsules allow us to predict the future, but also to get a sense of explanation, an understanding of why the universe is this way and not some other way. My friend and co-host Jorge Cham can't be with us today. He is somewhere in the jungles of Panama. And so we've invited our frequent guest host, Kelly Wienersmith, to join us. Kelly, thanks very much for coming on the pod again. I'm excited to be here to cook up brain snacks with you, Daniel. (laughs) One of the most amazing things to me about brain snacks and real snacks is that when we look out in the universe, there's such a huge variety of them. We're lucky to get to eat lots of different kinds of things when we live, you know, so many different kinds of fruits and vegetables and pastries filled with incredible stuff. But also just as you look out in the universe, there's just a lot of different kinds of stuff out there. I mean, there's like blueberries and plants and mushrooms and iPhones and exploding stars. And, you know, if you're trying to tackle the question of like what's out there in the universe and how do we make sense of it? There's a lot of different kinds of things to make sense of, right? So much different kinds of things to make sense of. Yes. And as people have just started gardening, the like production of those things is mind blowing. Like the fact that our crummy soil produces spicy peppers. How does that happen? It is incredible that we have these little biological machines for assembling spicy peppers basically out of dirt, sunlight, and air, right? Amazing chemistry done by those plants, yes. It is amazing. And at the same time, the universe at its smallest level, like the tiniest little bits that I study in my research, seem to be fairly small in number. I mean, there's just like a few particles that make up everything we know. You boil down those peppers or your lunch or your husband into particles, then you get a hundred elements, right, that basically make up everything. You tear those apart into protons and neutrons and electrons. You tear the protons and neutrons apart and you're down to just like up quarks and down quarks and electrons. With those three things, you can basically put together everything. So it's a natural sort of philosophical puzzle to understand like where does complexity arise? Why isn't the universe just a bunch of really simple combinations of these tiny little bits? Why is it possible to make all sorts of complicated things like kittens and husbands and pies? I'm a little concerned that you suggested boiling down my husband, but I'm interested in the topic, so I'm going to move forward with you here. It's just a thought experiment, right? It's definitely a thought experiment. Nobody should try that at home, either with kittens or husbands. But you know, kittens and husbands and lava do have something really fascinating in common, which is that they're made of the same ingredients. You know, if you take a kilogram of lava and a kilogram of flour, for example, let's only use non-living examples for now, then they're made of the same bits, the same up quarks and down quarks and electrons just put together in different ways. Even if you think about like different elements, different atoms, they're just made out of different numbers of protons and neutrons, but they basically all have the same ratio of one proton to one neutron to one electron. There's not a lot of variation from that in the periodic table. And so everything is just different arrangements of the same stuff. And so by the end of this podcast, I'd like to have a physicist's understanding of Carl Sagan's we're all star stuff <laughs> statement. Are you going to give me that by the end of this episode? By the end of the episode, I'm going to give you a recipe to make literally anything in your kitchen. Start with up quarks and down quarks, add electrons, and you're done. There you go. That's how particle physicists cook. You know, like it's it's some sort of crazy artistic license that all cookbooks <laughs> don't start at the quarks <laughs> stage. But what are you going to do with these authors? But it is amazing how many different things you can make out of these basic ingredients, right? It's incredible the complexity that we see out there in the universe and not even just the biological complexity, but the chemical complexity and the physical complexity. You know, if you started with basic ingredients in your Lego set, you can build essentially 
anything, right? Having a small number of building blocks, but lots of different ways to assemble them does allow you to introduce complexity in the arrangement. But philosophically, it's fascinating to think about what makes you you and what makes lava lava is not the particles that you are made out of, but just how they are put together. That means that like the information, the you-ness of you is somehow just in the relationship between particles, which makes it seem sort of like ineffable. I'd like to imagine that I'm built out of bits of Daniel and you're built out of bits of Kelly, but you're not. The Kelly-ness is really just how those same pieces are put together and you could have put them together to make somebody else. So I, I feel like the choice of your example matters so much in whether this story is uplifting or not. <laughs> okay. So, you know, when you were like bits of Kelly are sort of like lava, I'm like, oh, that's that's kind of a downer. But, you know, like as a biologist, if you're like, oh, the bird in the sky, you share bits with that. That's sort of a beautiful idea. Although maybe a geologist would be like, tone it down, Kelly. Lava's great. Yeah. You'd like to be compared to a pigeon rather than lava. I mean, pigeons are basically sky rats. You know, Rosemary Mosco wrote a great book on pigeons recently <laughs> and turned me around on pigeons. And so, yes, I'm fine with being a pigeon. I love rats, though. I don't say sky rats as a negative description. You know, we used to have rats living with us. They're wonderful pets. Very smart. So I'm also pro pigeon. But I got to say, I'd rather be compared to lava. Lava is definitely hotter than pigeons. <laughs> and that's the measure for goodness <laughs> in your life. What has the highest uh, temperature? Hey, you got to go with some quantifiable metric, right? So does it make the sun the best? <laughs> The sun is pretty cool, actually. You know, there are definitely hotter things in the universe. The interiors of neutron stars, for example, quark gluon plasmas created at the Large Hadron Collider are hotter than the center or the surface of the sun. So maybe that should be my point of reference. Perhaps, perhaps. But today we are not interested in diving deep to understand the core fundamental nature of reality and its materials, tearing apart the up quark and down quark into the basic bits that they might be made out of. We're going to do something a little different. We're going to take a step back and try to understand how those things come together to make the amazing complexity and variety that we do see in our universe. Because even if the elements of the periodic table are not a fundamental description of the universe, they're a pretty important part of our lives. You get too much mercury in your breakfast cereal, your life is going to be different. You are built out of carbon and you breathe oxygen. These things are important to understanding how life starts in the universe. And where life can go if it wants to move to different places in the universe. Exactly. And so if you're interested in building kittens or baking pies or assembling podcast hosts, then you want to know where you can find the ingredients. And so today on the podcast, we'll be answering exactly that question. We're going to be talking about what elements are most common in the universe. And we said a minute ago that everything is made out of up quarks and down quarks and electrons. And so you might get the sense that it doesn't really matter. But there is an important categorization here. When you put the up quarks and down quarks together to make protons and neutrons, and you put those together to make elements, we tend to count those by the number of protons inside the nucleus, right? So if you have just like a proton with one electron around it, that's hydrogen. You can add a neutron to it. You still call that hydrogen, right? It's a little bit different. You've added a neutron, but you still call it hydrogen. It's like neutrons aren't as important as the proton and the electron. But if you add another proton to it, then boom, it's another element. It's helium. Because now, in order to make it neutral, you also need another electron. And that's the key. The reason that we count things as different elements when you add a proton but not a neutron is that you also have to add that electron and that changes fundamentally the chemical behavior of the thing in a dramatic way. Because now the bonds it can form are different and its reactivity and whether it emits light or absorbs light, whether it likes to stick to stuff or not really changes. And so while like hydrogen and deuterium are different, adding a neutron to that proton does change it. It's not as big a change as adding a proton. So we tend to categorize this stuff in the universe by the number of protons in the nucleus. So if adding another proton means you have to get another electron, why don't we categorize things by the number of electrons that are in there? A great unanswered question in the history of science. I think it's probably because protons are more massive. And so we used to, before we understood what was inside these things, we used to categorize these things by atomic mass, just like how heavy 
is a mole of these atoms. And that's the count of the number of protons and neutrons together. And so all we could measure was sort of the atomic mass and the overall charge. So I think it probably comes down just to a bias in terms of the protons because they're heavier and they also contribute to the atomic mass. But, you know, the pro-electron folks have a good argument. Oh, that, is that still a live debate? <laughs> No, I would like to imagine that there's like an ancient Victorian society out there that feels like electrons have been overlooked. <laughs> got it. I mean, I'm sure there's still somebody. Everyone's got their thing. <laughs> but the fascinating thing when you look out into the universe is that we don't see all of these elements in equal numbers. You don't have as much uranium in the universe as you do nickel or in as much nickel as you do hydrogen, for example. And understanding where all these things come from requires you to do a deep dive into the history of the universe itself and to understand how all of these things come together, what engines there are out there in the universe capable of manufacturing these crazy elements. Let's see what the audience thought the answer was. Yeah, so as usual, I went out there to our cadre of volunteers to ask them if they knew what the most common elements in the universe were. If you'd like to participate in this segment of the podcast and contribute your uneducated speculation for our entertainment purposes only, then please write to me to questions at danielandjorge.com. We'd love to hear your voice on the podcast. So think about it for a minute. Do you know which elements are most common in the universe? Here's what some of our listeners had to say. First of all, I have a fundamental lack of understanding of the periodic table and what an element actually is, but I'm gonna guess hydrogen and uh, maybe helium. I don't know. I think hydrogen is the most common. That's kind of everywhere, because um, it's the one with, uh, it's, you know, it's number one on the periodic table and it's absolutely everywhere. And I think the next one is helium, which is number two. I don't know if it then continues, I, I know that as, atoms get more protons and neutrons and they get heavier, they become less common, I think, uh, but definitely hydrogen. I think it's dark matter. I don't know if it's really an element that you are thinking about. What's the, the, the definition of an element in that case? I don't know. The most common element in the universe is hydrogen. And um, because of the way fusion works, I think after that is helium. If I remember correctly, I think the most abundant elements in the universe is hydrogen, um, helium, and oxygen, and maybe carbon. So basically just the few elements on top of the periodic table. The most common in the universe should be uh, hydrogen and uh, helium, but hydrogen by far, and oxygen too. Other than that, um, is dark matter an element? We don't know. But that should be the top three elements that we know and we can interact with. I think in terms of all the question and answer sessions that I've been around for on this podcast, this is the one that had the most consistency in the answers. It seems like most people, you know, argued it was hydrogen followed by helium. But then there was some question about dark matter and whether it counts as an element or not. And I think that the answer is no. But yeah, what, what did you think of these answers? Yeah, I was very glad to see that everybody knew the basic story, that hydrogen is the most common thing out there. And we even heard some ideas about why and how these things are made. And so I was very pleased to hear that. I also love the legalistic loophole of like dark matter. Is that a thing? Is that an element? Does that count? What are you really asking? Is this a trick question? There's a little bit of paranoia there. <laughs> uh, is he trying to kill me? That's the other question, I think, when I talk to you. Exactly, because it, it's important to remember that when we talk about elements, we're talking about atomic matter. We're talking about things made out of atoms. But in the larger accounting of the universe, atomic matter is less than 5% of the energy density of the universe. If you take Take like a cubic light year of the universe and you add up all of the energy in there, then like 70% of the energy in that chunk of the universe is devoted to dark energy, which contributes to the accelerating expansion of the universe. Something like 25% is dark matter, some weird kind of stuff that's out there, but it's invisible and almost intangible. So it's hard to know exactly what it's made out of. And the rest of it, this 5% is the kind of stuff we're talking about today that I'm made out of and you are made out of and kittens are made out of and pastry crusts are made out of atomic matter things built out of protons neutrons and electrons and in understanding what flavor of those elements we have and in what 
portion, we're going to understand a lot about the history of the universe and also the role that dark matter played in shaping this universe, even though we currently don't think that dark matter itself is made of atoms. So that means it doesn't have any quarks. So like even one level lower, dark matter doesn't have that either. Yeah, we think that dark matter is made of something else, not quarks, not electrons, something totally different and weird, a completely different kind of particle, or maybe not even a particle, or maybe many different kinds of particles, or maybe tiny cosmic kittens. I mean, we're kind of a little bit clueless. You might get the sense. I'm hoping for the cosmic kittens route. <laughs> so you mentioned hydrogen is the most common thing in the universe to, by atoms or that we're going to be talking about today. Where is that coming from? And hydrogen is the most common thing in the universe, and it's not even close, like not even a little bit. It's a pretty good approximation to say the universe is hydrogen. I mean, if you just said everything in the universe was hydrogen, you'd be getting it 92% correct, which is, hey, that's an A minus, right? So you could just like move on. That's your description of the universe. You're done. You're satisfied with your grade. So that means that like of the atoms that exist in the universe, 92% of them have only a single proton, right? And it's incredible. Like most of the universe is hydrogen. It's really just a tiny little bit. Like the rest of the universe is just like the spice in the recipe. I, so like as a biologist, I always think about parsimony. And so to me, I feel like, well, maybe that makes sense because like the one proton doesn't need to find anything else or bind up with anything else. And so maybe just like it's easiest to get one proton. And that's why you've got a lot of it. But that's not the answer at all, is it? No, that's actually exactly the answer, right? It's the simplest thing you can do with these particles that is stable. And so the critical thing to understand is like, well, where do any elements come from? You know, are they just like created during the Big Bang at the same level? How does this actually come together? How do you make elements from the sort of early universe cosmic soup? Where do they emerge? And so in understanding that story, you'll understand very quickly why basically almost all started as hydrogen. And so, you know, going way back to the very, very beginning before there was any atoms, any even quarks, any elements at all, go back to like the pre-Big Bang, right? What was the universe at the very, very beginning? Well, there was some hot and dense state, something we don't know what it was really at all. We just know that it had a lot of energy and it was hot and dense. And a common misperception about the Big Bang is that it was already like a tiny dot of stuff, which then exploded out into the universe. But instead, the modern perception of the sort of pre-Big Bang early universe is that the universe was already filled with stuff. It wasn't like mostly empty space with a tiny dot, which then exploded. It was filled with this hot, dense stuff, which then expanded and cooled rapidly. So the temperature is dropping as space is expanding. So you should think of the Big Bang as sort of happening everywhere all at once, not from a tiny little dot. And this is why I worry about teaching my eight-year-old anything. Because I swear when I was in high school, I watched a video where it like started as a dot and it exploded. And you just blew my mind that it wasn't that and that matter was everywhere. And now I feel like how many other things that I learned in high school are not the way we view things anymore? <laughs> and anyway, you've blown my mind. Let's move on. There's a lot of misperception about that. And part of that is because the whole idea of the Big Bang has evolved. Now we think of Big Bang as sort of like the inflationary epic. We have some of the sort of like question mark, hot, dense stuff, which then expanded very, very rapidly via cosmic inflation. And for those of you interested in more details about exactly how that happened, what we do and don't know about that, check out our episode called Did This Particle Create the Big Bang? which goes into detail about some theories about what might have caused that. Anyway, you have this hot, dense question mark stuff, and then it gets less hot and less dense as things cool, right? Now, we talk a lot on the podcast about what space is, and we say that space is filled with quantum fields. Right? You have a unit of space that has quantum fields in it, like a field for the electron and a field for the quark and a field for the photons, right? And particles are just like ripples in those fields. Now, you go back to the very, very early universe, everything was so hot and so dense and so filled with energy that it doesn't even really make sense to talk about particles yet. It's like looking at the ocean and asking, like, are there any drops in the ocean? You say, like, no, it's just sort of like filled with water. In the same way, these quantum fields were so energized because everything was so hot and dense that the concept of a particle, like a little localized packet of energy moving through the universe, doesn't really make sense, just like the wrong phase of the universe. And it wasn't until a little bit later, after like 10 to the minus 32 seconds, that things cooled down enough that you could say, here's a particle, there's a particle, there's a particle. 
So that's when like quarks and gluons and photons and dark matter all emerged from this early universe question mark stuff. So the thing that triggered that then was cooling. So first you have everything mixed up and they start separating when it's cooling and the cooling started just because time had passed and things cool with time. Is that right? Or did something trigger the movement from homogenous whatever to like specific things? It's the expansion that's the key. So space is expanding. Inflation is pulling space apart. And the same process is happening right now. The universe is expanding. Currently, we call it dark energy, where space is making more space. So between the atoms in your body and between the Earth and the sun and between our galaxy and other galaxies, space is producing new chunks of space. So distances between stuff is increasing. We don't understand why it's doing that or how it's doing that. But in the very early universe, a very similar process happened, but much more dramatic and much faster. And so this expansion then cools everything down. So the overall arc of history of the universe is start very hot and dense and then cool and expand and become less dense and more dilute. And as that happens, we sort of like move through different temperature regions. We get different sort of effects, you know, the same way like you have a gas and then a liquid and a solid. We have different phases of matter. We had different phases of sort of the physical laws of the universe when it made sense to talk about the universe in different ways. So only when things cooled down enough could we even like talk about particles as phenomena in quantum fields. So that went on for like 10 to the minus 12 seconds. And then things kept cooling. And the Higgs field, this really weird field that interacts with the particles and gives them mass, it cooled down and sort of got stuck on a shelf. We talk about this in several episodes, how the Higgs field is very weird because it doesn't relax down as much as other fields. It got sort of stuck in a high potential and it has a lot of energy stored in it. And that's what gives a lot of particles mass. We have a bunch of episodes on the Higgs boson if you want to learn more details about that. So here, the particles now get mass. So you have the quarks and the electrons. They used to have no mass. Now they do have mass. So the universe still has no protons in it, but now it has like quarks and electrons and gluons in this big hot soup called a quark gluon plasma. And we also have a whole episode about what that is and how people make it at the Large Hadron Collider to study the early universe. So saying, you know, this happened at 10 to the negative 32 seconds and this other thing happened at 10 to the negative 12 seconds, like those are really short time periods, right? To the negative something means that many zeros after the decimal, right? So how do we figure out down to that level of precision? Is that too off course to be asking that question? No, it's a great question. How well do we know these numbers? We don't know them very well at all. All of these come out of sort of our models for what we think happened. And know there's huge question marks here. We could be off by, you know, big factors. So this is sort of the current understanding. And so we should put like big uncertainties on these numbers for sure. It couldn't have taken like a million years because what happened in the very early universe crystallized very quickly and it has long term impacts on the rest of the universe, as we'll see. So we're pretty sure that this stuff happened very, very quickly, though the specific numbers are a little fuzzy. All right. So in like the blink of an eye, we've got quarks, but not yet protons. Exactly. And so it's too hot for protons to form. Like there's just too much energy because what is a proton? You have three quarks and they're bound together by the gluons, but protons can get broken up, right? If you smash them together, you put enough energy into your collider, you can break them up. If you heat up the whole universe, then protons sort of melt into their constituents, right? And so what you need to do to make protons form is you need the universe to cool down even further. So then like 10 to the minus six seconds, then protons formed. The universe was now too cold for quarks and gluons to just like fly around in this plasma. And so that cooled down and then you got hadrons, you got protons, you got neutrons and you have electrons. And that's basically hydrogen, right? Remember that protons are hydrogen. Astronomers don't really care if there's an electron on it or not. If there's a proton there, they call that hydrogen. So that was the birth of hydrogen, 10 to the minus six seconds into the universe, hydrogen was born. So does that mean that hydrogen is also the first element that was ever made or just the most abundant that was made at this point? I think both of those things are true. Hydrogen was the first element made and the most abundant. And in the next few seconds, you'll see that a little bit of other stuff was made in this sort of like ending days of the Big Bang, but basically it just formed huge amounts of hydrogen. That also means that all the hydrogen in the universe is super duper old. It's been around except for the first 10 to the minus six seconds of the universe. It's been here. All the hydrogen that's in the atmosphere or in the sun or in the stars, it's as old as the universe 
except for 10 to the minus six seconds. So we're all old souls to some degree. <laughs> we are all old souls. So that hydrogen has been hanging out for a long time and it spent like 380,000 years before it found its electrons, before the universe cooled even further to make neutral hydrogen gas. So it's been neutral hydrogen for a very, very, very long time, but it's been technically hydrogen since the very beginning. I guess it took so long to get the electrons because you needed just a whole lot more cooling before the electrons came around? Yeah, things were still too hot. So electrons had too much energy to get trapped by the protons. So electrons and protons were flying around near each other, but they were just moving too fast for the bonds to form, for them to pull into each other and form hydrogen. So you just have to wait for the universe to keep cooling until it like gelled into neutral hydrogen. Well, speaking of cooling, the audience is gonna have to cool their heels for a little while because it's time for a break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, it's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place, full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities. But it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. You know that feeling after you've done a deep spring clean of your house when you realize, wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like how you feel when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, while Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording all this? So it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Personally, I've used Mint Mobile, and the calls are always so crisp and so clear. All of their plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. So it's time to ditch your overpriced wireless and go with Mint Mobile's limited time deal for three months a premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash universe. That's mintmobile.com slash universe. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash universe. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Slower speeds above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. All right, we're back. So we talked about hydrogen already, which is the most abundant and the earliest formed element. So who takes the number two spot? 
So number two, no surprise, is helium, right? Helium is element number two. It's made out of two protons in the nucleus with two electrons going around it. And there's usually also some number of neutrons in there. And helium is 7.1% of the universe by atoms. So if you just like lined up all the atoms in the universe and counted them, helium would be about 7.1%. And remember that hydrogen is 92%. So already in hydrogen and helium together, you have 99.1% of all the atoms in the universe. Everything else is now less than 1% of the stuff in the universe. Wow. Is it possible that there's some universe out there where there's more helium than hydrogen and everybody's got a squeaky voice or you just have to always have hydrogen first? <laughs> I love thinking about that universe. And I imagine for a moment, maybe I would try to do an Alvin Chipmunk voice to answer your question. But then I realized I just couldn't do it. But it's a good question because, you know, where did that helium come from? It came from that primordial hydrogen in the sort of ending days of the Big Bang and its immediate aftermath formed that helium. And so we'll learn about exactly how that happened. But it's hard to imagine converting a majority of the hydrogen to helium in this early universe fusion process. But it might be possible you'd have to tweak some of the laws of physics to make that happen. A worthwhile endeavor, no doubt. And, you know, what's funny about these elements is that astrophysicists think about hydrogen and helium as basically most of the universe and everything else is the leftovers, which they call metals. You know, chemists, when they talk about metals, they talk very specifically about part of the periodic table that has, you know, high conductivity and is shiny, for example. The kind of things that like you and I think of as a metal. We don't think like oxygen as a metal. We don't think of ourselves as like breathing metal gas. But to astronomers, it's hydrogen, helium, and metals. Why would they do that? <laughs> is it just because it's a, a very different process and so they want to categorize it as something else? Yeah, as we'll see, basically everything else is made after the Big Bang inside stars. And they like to think of stars as creating metals. And so for them, it's just a totally different categorization. I think also it's just because hydrogen and helium are the big players. So they want like a name for everything else. And like we often do in physics, they took a name which exists and means something else and they gave it a new confusing definition. Find that very frustrating about y'all. So let's continue with the history of the universe to understand how other stuff was made. So we're like 10 to the minus six seconds into the universe. We have protons, we have electrons, we have neutrons, but everything is flying around really, really hot. And we also have a lot of antimatter. You know, we think that in the very early universe, we created matter, but we also created antimatter. So that means antiprotons and antielectrons. And we imagine that the Big Bang created this stuff in equal numbers, that when this like pre-matter energy cooled down to create particles, it created all the particles basically in equal numbers. And so we think that antimatter was created at the same rate as matter. So then you had like big flashes of light because what happens when matter hits antimatter is it annihilates. You have an electron hit an anti-electron, also called a positron, you get a photon. And so huge amounts of matter and antimatter disappeared very quickly and a lot of photons were made. And so after about 10 seconds of living it out in a crazy particle party, the universe then became dominated by photons from matter-antimatter annihilation. But if you're wearing the star screen that you and I started selling a couple weeks ago, <laughs> you'll be okay. But so I'm trying to like match up the vision in my head from when I was in high school. So in that case, the light in like the video that I'm remembering was all in one center location and then spread out. But here, like the photons being made, it would be like everything would be lighting up at once, right? It wouldn't be in one central location. It's all over the place. That's right. Because we think the Big Bang happened everywhere, it also means there is no center to the universe. Not like this stuff all happened somewhere and is flying out from there. It happened everywhere. It happened here. You are right now at the place where the Big Bang happened, literally. Right. It happened everywhere all at once. And so the whole universe was filled with matter and antimatter, which then annihilated very rapidly. And then you have a universe with enormous amounts of high energy photons flying around. So we call this the radiation dominated epoch of the universe, when most of the energy was in photons and not in like things we call matter. But there were small amounts of matter that were left over for reasons we still don't understand. There are mysterious processes that either created more matter than antimatter or preferably converted some of the antimatter to 
two matter. So there's a little bit of an imbalance and some matter was left over. So you end up with a universe with lots of photons and a little bit of protons, electrons and neutrons left over. All right. So then how do we get from all of those photons to having mercury? <laughs> I love this phrase, mergering. It makes it sound like a legal thing, like the protons and the lawyers got together and they're like, let's talk about the future of these particles. Well, I said I said mercury, but I, oh, I prefer sorry. what you said. So that's like, what you said is way more interesting. So we're going with that. That's what I said. I made up a great new word. Right. You made up particle mergering. And so what happened next is that you have a universe basically filled with hydrogen. And this hydrogen also was not just pure proton plus electron. A lot of them had a neutron tagging along. So we call this deuterium or deuterium means like two. So you have two nucleons in there, a proton and a neutron surrounded by an electron. And the universe was cool enough to form that, but still hot enough for fusion. All right, so fusion is when you take two pieces of hydrogen, two protons, essentially, even though they repel each other electrically because they're both positively charged, you squeeze them together, then you can form helium. And so this happens in the heart of stars all the time. And we're trying to make it happen here on Earth in fusion reactors that can release energy. But it requires very high temperatures and very high densities. But for a few minutes after the Big Bang, these conditions existed. So three minutes after this unknown state expanded very, very rapidly, the conditions were perfect for hydrogen fusion into helium. And that's where most of the helium in the universe was made after three minutes. So this is my monthly moment of existential dread. All of this talk about like heating and cooling, does that mean that like if things had cooled down much faster, none of this stuff would have happened? And like there's, you know, we're talking about, you know, 10 to the negative 32 seconds, like these tiny little timescales. If the timing had been a little bit different, might we have never gotten the photons to join together or whatever? Well, if things had happened much faster, then we wouldn't have had as much time to make helium. So we'd have more hydrogen in the universe. But hydrogen is sort of the basic, most stable thing. It's sort of the inevitable endpoint. If you take the universe and you cool it down, you're going to end up with hydrogen because it's got to fall into up quarks and down quarks and electrons. And as the universe cools, those things are going to form stable objects. But it does determine how much helium you get. So if you had like less time in that hot phase when it was perfect to make helium, you'd get less helium. Also, the density of the universe controls like how much helium you get and also how much lithium you get. We'll talk about that in a moment. But in this early phase, you also sometimes were able to fuse things together to get lithium, right, to get the next element. But the ratio of hydrogen and helium and lithium that you get is very, very sensitive to the temperature and to the quark density. So by understanding like how much helium and hydrogen and lithium was made in the early universe, we can tell what the quark density was before that. Right. We know, for example, if you had higher quark density, you would have gotten a different distribution. You would have gotten more helium and more lithium. If you had less lower quark density, you would have gotten less helium and less lithium. So what that means is that we can account for the quarks. We can say, we look out into the universe and we see the ratio of hydrogen and helium and lithium in the early universe. That tells us about the quark density very early on. And that's how we know that dark matter is not made of quarks because we can account for all those quarks. We say we know how many quarks were made very, very early on. Those all ended up in hydrogen, and helium, and lithium. Therefore, the dark matter that's out there can't be made out of quarks. It's an important part of the argument for why we think dark matter is not made of quarks, is not atomic matter at all. We are very clever apes. <laughs> it's really incredible. And, you know, the folks who think about, well, maybe dark matter is this other thing, or maybe dark matter is a misunderstanding of gravity. This is an important argument for why dark matter is matter and why it's not just like dark, heavy rocks floating out in space that we haven't observed yet. So it's really interesting how much you learn about the universe just by understanding like where these elements were crystallized and how that process happened. That's awesome. We've talked about how you make helium. Are there other ways to make helium or did all of it come from this moment? So helium is produced in the early universe in the Big Bang, but also much later, right? Like our sun is a helium factory because this process we talked about where hydrogen comes together to make helium, that's exactly what's happening inside our star. That's why it's like hot right now outside because the energy from hydrogen burning inside the star is producing helium. You have this complicated multi-step process where you actually need like two hydrogen nuclei to come together to make deuterium. So you have two protons come together and one of them actually converts into a neutron, 
which then becomes an element of deuterium. They have like another hydrogen that comes in and you make helium three and then those helium three merge together and you end up with helium four. So it's a complicated multi-step process, but this is what we call hydrogen burning and it produces most of the energy in the cores of most of the stars out there. So when you look out in the night sky and you see all that twinkling, mostly you're observing hydrogen being turned into helium. Is that fusion or is fusion slightly different than what you just described? That is exactly fusion that powers the stars. But you know, there's a long gap here. We're talking about helium made primordially during the Big Bang, the first three minutes of the universe. But there were hundreds of millions of years before the universe got to a place where it recreated those conditions in the hearts of stars to make more helium because the universe was just vast clouds of hydrogen for a long, long time. We call these the dark ages of the universe before gravity pulled those clouds together and created the conditions for stars so we could fuse this hydrogen together to make more helium. So the universe has been working on that for 14 billion years or so, and it still hasn't really changed the balance. You know, most of the stuff out there is still just hydrogen. Wow. Helium doesn't usually go back to hydrogen, right? So you still end up with that balance despite constantly turning hydrogen into helium? Exactly. We've been working on it for a long time, but it's a long process and there's so much hydrogen out there that it's going to take a long time before we burn through it. We have an episode about like how many generations of stars there will be. And we think the universe has like trillions of years of fuel potentially uh, to burn stars. All right. So I can tell my kids about that because it won't scare them too much. <laughs> All right, we've gotten hydrogen and helium, which were the most common guesses from the audience. Let's take a break and then let's hear about who the runner up is. Who's in third place? eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right, it's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The financial universe out there can seem like a vast place full of scary mysteries and exciting possibilities. But it can also be overwhelming to navigate, especially when you're first starting out in life. It feels sometimes like just one wrong turn could send you hurtling endlessly towards a financial black hole. But don't worry, you don't have to navigate the financial universe on your own. With the right tools, you can master the financial universe and chart your course with confidence. Intuit helps you navigate the financial universe through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit has helped a hundred million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. 
It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, so the universe is mostly hydrogen. Second place, way far behind, is helium. Who's coming in third? You might think by extrapolation that number three would be the element with three protons in it, that you could like take helium and hydrogen and fuse them together to make lithium, which has three protons. But actually lithium is very, very rare in the universe. There are only trace amounts of lithium. Number three is actually oxygen. Oxygen is the third most common element in the universe. So we'll get to that in a minute, but let's talk about lithium and like why it's so weird. It turns out that lithium is really unstable. And so they are produced in nuclear fusion, but only very briefly because they basically fall apart very rapidly. So unlike helium or other stuff, when you make lithium, it doesn't last very long. It just sort of like falls back apart. And oxygen is more stable? Mm-hmm. Oxygen is much more stable. So you might be wondering like what makes something stable or not stable? What are we talking about here? Remember that we're talking about gluing protons and neutrons together, which is complicated. It's well beyond the like chemistry of pluses and minuses. Everything inside the nucleus is either positively charged or neutral. So what's sticking them together anyway? Why can you stick two protons together to make helium or even heavier stuff? The answer is the strong nuclear force. The gluons that are inside these protons and neutrons can also talk to each other. So when you get two protons close enough to each other, the gluons that are inside them can sort of grab onto each other and overcome their electrostatic repulsion. And that's very complicated and it's good in some configurations, but not in others, which is what makes some elements stable and other elements not. And so you tend to form these things in shells, just like we have shells of electrons inside the nucleus. We think there are shells of protons and neutrons that arrange themselves in various configurations. Some of those configurations are like very nicely packed, like a Roman arch that's stable and other configurations are very unstable. And lithium turns out to be like a very unstable configuration. So this is another thing that I feel like I don't remember learning when I was in high school or college. Is this another like new thing or like was I sick on the wrong day? I don't know how often you paid attention in college, but uh, this is something we've been working on for a few decades, understanding like the nuclear shell model, probably not very often taught in high school, but the whole concept that some of these things are more stable than others should be familiar. Yeah. Okay. That's familiar. Okay. So sets of three are just not very stable and that's why we don't have lithium around for a long time? Yeah, lithium in general is just not very stable. Other elements are much more stable. Like you get up to carbon, carbon is stable, and that has six, right? And so it's not as simple as like sets of three. Some of these things, the way they are arranged are stable and some of them are not. And it's not easy to calculate either. It's not like you can just sit down with a couple of equations and figure this stuff out because a strong force is very strong and very nasty and very hard to do any calculations with. But because lithium and the next element, beryllium, are so unstable, Basically, nothing else was made in the Big Bang. Big Bang is like massive amounts of hydrogen, a little bit of helium, tiny, tiny bits of lithium and nothing else because lithium is sort of like a barrier. You can't really get past lithium in the early universe. And so you couldn't really make anything else. That's why the Big Bang didn't make like uranium or plutonium, because one of the stepping stones to get there was too unstable to last. And so lithium is not a metal, though, because it didn't stick around. (laughs) Astronomers would call lithium a metal for sure, because there are some amounts of it in the universe, but it's very, very rare. Uh, The same is true for beryllium, which is the next element. Uh, It exists in the universe, but it wasn't made in the Big Bang. It's too heavy. And some of it is made inside stars, right? If you fuse two helium atoms together, sometimes you get beryllium. But a lot of it is also very unstable. And so some isotopes of it don't last very long. A lot of it falls apart. Actually, most of the beryllium in the universe was not made inside stars at all. Most of the beryllium in the universe was made by taking oxygen, which is everywhere, and exists between stars, and then hitting it with a cosmic ray. 
So you have, for example, stars are giving out their stellar wind, which is like streams of particles, protons, electrons, all sorts of stuff. So we call these things cosmic rays, just high energy particles flying through the universe. If one of them hits an oxygen atom, it can knock off some of the protons inside the oxygen atom. So this is like fission, right? Not fusion, where you're taking lighter elements and using them to build heavier stuff. This is taking heavier elements and break them apart. It's like what happens in fission reactors with uranium. You break uranium down into lighter elements. In the interstellar medium, we think there are vast clouds of oxygen. Sometimes a proton hits one and makes beryllium. So beryllium is actually made by cosmic rays between stars. When oxygen gets hit by a cosmic ray, does it always make beryllium or does it sometimes make other things depending on like how it got hit? It doesn't always make beryllium. Sometimes they just bounce off each other. But sometimes a high enough energy proton just the right way will crack open the oxygen and break it up into pieces. And that's mostly how beryllium was made in the universe. But it'll like never break oxygen into like three heliums, for example? You can do that also. Yeah, you can get lots of different stuff when you smash these particles together. So you mentioned that carbon is the next thing that we have the most of. Where is the carbon coming from? So carbon was not made in the very early universe because it's kind of tricky to make. Carbon requires this like three step dance. Carbon requires six protons, right? And you can't just fuse lithium together because lithium is unstable. You can't just like take two lithium atoms and stick them together because there just isn't enough lithium around. So what you need to do instead of fusing two lithiums together is you need to fuse three heliums together. So you need six protons, two from each of three different helium atoms. And now in the very early universe, we made helium and that helium bounced off each other. But it's very hard to get like three heliums together. It's much more complicated than getting two heliums together. And so this is a complicated process. We have two heliums come together to make beryllium, which is also really unstable. But before the beryllium falls apart, you need that third helium to come in, to swoop in and turn it into carbon. So like if you get that third one in place just in time, this is called the three alpha process, then you can make it over the unstable skipping stone of beryllium and get to carbon. And where is this happening? Is this in the sun or is this happening out where you get the oxygen becoming beryllium? So this happens inside of stars, but it's not easy for it to happen, right? In order for this to happen, the star has to be like really big and really hot so we can burn helium. And it's not just that it has to be hot, it has to be dense. So that you have like enough helium around so that one of these helium atoms hits the beryllium before it breaks apart. But this is a really fascinating process because a lot of stars are not hot enough to burn helium for most of their lives. Like our star, for example, helium, when you produce it in our star, just falls to the center of the star and accumulates at the core there, kind of inert for a long, long time. Our star is not hot enough to burn the helium. But it will be for a very brief moment near the end of its life when enough of that helium accumulates. So there's enough gravitational pressure. All of a sudden it's going to cross this threshold and it's going to burn all of that helium really quickly into carbon. It's called a helium flash. And for a few seconds, the sun will produce 100 billion times as much energy as it normally does. So... That means that the carbon on Earth didn't come from our sun because our sun couldn't make it yet. So the carbon on Earth came from other suns. Yes, Is that right? exactly. Because we're like three generations of suns in the universe. So most of the carbon that we have here on Earth was formed during one of these helium burning events inside another star, which burned for billions of years and then died and exploded and spread out its seeds into the universe. The universe started out as almost all hydrogen and a little bit of helium. So those first few stars in their solar systems were almost all just hydrogen. But the next generation were more metallic, as astronomers say. And the next generation are even more metallic. So our solar system is part of the third generation, we think. And so we have lots of leftover bits that were produced inside other stars. So this is what you were talking about earlier. We are all star stuff. The carbon that's inside our body was made by fusing helium inside other stars. But so then like the moon doesn't have like any carbon, right? So it's kind of the carbon sort of the star explodes and the carbon goes out there and then it's sort of like patchily distributed throughout the universe? Is that fair to say? Yeah, exactly. Because the Earth doesn't have the same distribution of stuff as the whole universe does, right? Like when the solar system formed, most of the hydrogen that went into forming the solar system went to Jupiter and the sun. We got very, very little hydrogen. We got a lot of the heavier stuff 
because we had like a heavy rocky sea that gathered together some of the heavier stuff. So the Earth is not a representative sample of the universe at all, but the solar system as a whole is more representative. I gotta say, usually talking to you gives me like existential dread, but I'm feeling pretty uplifted right now <laughs> that all of these different things that we've talked about have all so far gone in the direction of creating the Earth. That seems like a pretty low probability thing. All right, so moving past carbon, tell me about some of the heavier stuff. And so from there, we need heavier, hotter stars that are capable of burning helium and then capable of like burning carbon. So if you have the right conditions, if you have enough pressure and enough temperature and enough density, you can fuse carbon together. This is called carbon burning. And then it's just stepping your way up the periodic table. You can get all the way up to iron. You can fuse things up to iron and the process releases energy. Right? When we talk about fusion, we like smoosh two nuclei together, we get a heavier nucleus plus energy. That's why stars glow and continue to burn because the energy that's produced from the fusion keeps the fusion going. But after iron, when you try to fuse iron together with other stuff, it eats energy. Like the weird nuclear structure that's keeping these things together, it starts to need energy to form these other heavier elements. So you want to make like lead and uranium inside your star, you can do it, but it cools the star down. So it contributes to killing the star rather than keeping it burning. And so inside the star, you can make like things up to about iron with fusion. But afterwards, the process slows down really rapidly because it's a cooling process instead of a heating process. But you need to get super hot to make iron, right? So you get super hot, you start making iron, and then that cools you down. Exactly. And only the biggest, most massive stars can even make iron. Like our sun will never make iron. It'll fuse helium at its core and it'll make some carbon in its last few gasps, but it'll never make anything heavier than that. To get iron, you need like much more massive stars. And then to get heavier than iron, you might wonder like, well, where does that come from? How is that possible if you can't use fusion? Well, there's a few other processes to make that stuff. Like one thing you can do is called neutron capture. So you have some heavy thing floating around a star. You also have a bunch of neutrons floating around. Sometimes instead of like actual fusion where you add protons to an element, you can add a neutron. Take, for example, gold, which has weight 197. If it absorbs a neutron, it's still gold, but now it's 198. And gold 198 is unstable and tends to beta decay, so that neutron turns into a proton, and now it's mercury. And so the gold is taking like a two-step dance of absorbing a neutron, flipping it into a proton, and now it's taken one step up the periodic table. Wow, you go from something you really want to something you really don't so much want. <laughs> hey, no judgment here. You know, some people like mercury, not in their pastries. You know, I don't see fancy mercury flakes on pastries as much as I see fancy gold foil. That's true. Yeah, I don't, I don't want any uh, mercury flakes in my liquor either <laughs> or my, my shampoo. Let's keep it out of our stuff. Exactly. And the heavier stuff is also made, we think, at the last moments of a star. Sometimes when a star is collapsing, it can produce the conditions necessary to make the heavier elements that it couldn't otherwise normally fuse. Like if you don't have the conditions necessary to make heavier stuff, well, at the last few moments of a star's life, when it undergoes gravitational collapse, it creates intense temperature, intense pressure, intense density. And in these last moments, it can do what's called supernova nucleosynthesis, where it makes some of these heavier elements, gold and europium and other kinds of things can be formed in those moments by supernova. Is that something that we've been able to observe, like a supernova happening and these things sort of being like ejected based on their like spectral characteristics or something? Even weirder, we find little crystals of it buried in the ocean. Yeah, specific conditions for making these things are quite unique. And they make these little crystal nodules, which we have found like sprayed out through the universe and dug out like from the bottom of the ocean. We have a whole episode about supernova and how people figure this out. And one thing they discovered when they understood this is that it didn't seem to be explaining everything. Like supernova can make some of these heavier elements, but it can't explain all of it. Like there needed to be another process. There weren't enough supernovas to make all the gold we see in the universe, for example. So there's a completely different way of making these heavier elements sometimes. And that's by combining neutron stars. So a neutron stars like the leftover remnant of a really, really heavy star. Maybe it had like a supernova and it collapsed and it leaves this really hot, crazy core with strange nuclear matter. And it's not dense enough to form a black hole. It just sort of sits there hot and glowing in the x-rays. But sometimes there are two of them 
and the two are close enough to each other, they'll spiral in and eventually combine and produce like gravitational waves. But in that moment, they also produce really heavy elements. So neutron star collisions can make like gold and europium. You know, we think that, for example, in one of these collisions, you can make like five earth masses of gold that's where we should be doing space mining <laughs> how do we get out there i think the conditions are a little treacherous but exactly it's incredible to think that these fairly rare and dramatic and cataclysmic events are responsible for making so many of the interesting atoms that make our universe fun and unique and make like technology possible so many of those elements are important for like batteries here on earth and we take advantage of their weird properties for all sorts of like chemical processes and none of that would be possible if we didn't have dramatic and cataclysmic destructive events out there in the universe weirdly producing these things right yeah you know i know i say this every week but every every week i am amazed at the things that physicists have learned about the universe and figured out that just like it blows my mind that we managed to figure all these details out. Yeah, I think one more thing that people should understand about these elements is that if you look at like the frequency of the elements in the universe, you can tell yourself a story it like starts out with hydrogen and helium, and then it falls pretty quickly. And there's a couple gaps there like lithium and beryllium and boron are just unstable. So there aren't very many of them and the heavier elements are less likely. But there's also a really weird zigzag pattern, like the even elements are more common than the odd. You know, so like 10 is more common than 11 and 40 is more common than 41 and 78 is more common than 79. And that's weird. And that's another consequence of this nuclear shell model we were talking about earlier, how having like a certain number of protons and neutrons to fit together into the right pattern makes you more stable. And so this is called the Otto Harkins rule that argues that elements with odd atomic numbers have one unpaired proton and so are more likely to capture another one, increasing their atomic number. And so really in the end, everything that we see in the universe, all these elements come from the basic rules of the protons and neutrons, like how you're allowed to click them together, what they like to do, what conditions you need to make them do various things. It really does tell you just by looking at the distribution of the number of elements in the universe, sort of what's allowed out there and our history like how we've been cooking the universe so far is this everything from computer chips to ciabatta <laughs> all right so spread that on your focaccia and have it for lunch all right so thanks everybody for coming along with us on this cosmic culinary journey of creation as we talk about what's out there in the universe how it's made and where it all came from and i hope that gave you an appetite i'm hungry <laughs> Let's go eat. <laughs> Try to avoid the mercury-laced dishes. I'll pass that note on to Zach. And thanks everybody for joining us. Tune in next time. Thanks, bye. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. 
or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.